Welcome to this new episode of Reimagine, the podcast program by the GSR Foundation about innovation on publishing and reading. Hello, everyone. Uh, welcome to Reimagine, a digital publishing summit again. In this second session, we are having Michael Tumbling, President and CEO of Rakuten Kobo, and uh, we have the pleasure also to have with us a good friend as uh, Rudiger Bischenbach, who is going to present Mr. Tumbling. The floor is yours, Rudiger. Thank you, Luis. Uh, hello, everybody. Um, I'm very pleased to welcome Michael Tumbling here in our conference, one of the most eloquent speakers and one of the voices you always want to hear when it's about a perspective of the overall, the big screen, the big panorama of what is happening in the book trade, both uh, digital and more broadly. Um, I had hoped to ask him to start with music, but we decided that despite of his background as a composer, we will uh, stay and stick with the books. Uh, Michael has a very long and fascinating career in that he was involved in pretty much everything in Canada that was uh, connecting and building and developing in the early days uh, the digital side of the book trade. Uh, he was with Indigo, uh, the preeminent book chain. He was a co-founder of BookNet Canada, the market research um, association uh, that is observing the market. And then he is in the founding team of Kobo uh, from the very beginning, uh, being today both the CEO and the president of Kobo Rakuten. So I very, uh, very warmly welcome Michael. And he's going to talk about what he thinks and what he anticipates that we will see uh, as consequences, as further perspective, as uh, impact and changing behaviors in the book trade as a result from the current COVID-19 crisis. Michael, the floor is yours. Thank you, Rudiger. And, and thank you as well to Luis, Jose, and Laurent Bos for organizing this event and then reimagining it under these exceptional circumstances. I... Uh, uh, I know we all have uh, a lot of screens in our lives right now, so thanks to all of you for spending more time in front of one today as you're listening to these. Uh, I was given a very broad topic to uh, to speak about the the future of the book sector after the the coronavirus crisis, and uh, and it's been interesting to look at the what's the best way to find our way into that topic in. In many ways, uh, a business is defined by the kinds of questions that it asks every day. So even if a business has you know, different challenges, the questions that define what it does usually stay the same. You know, for a publisher, those questions are things like, how many copies of this book do we think we will sell? Can we find an audience for it? What should the advance be? How will we negotiate with this retailer? How much should we spend on audiobooks this year? For a retailer, those questions may be, how many copies of this book do we want to order? How much should we invest in our stores versus e-commerce versus digital? What kind of return are we getting on our marketing investments? And it's no different at Kobo. The questions that we generally ask from year to year are the same. Should we expand into this new territory? How much should we invest in designing this new device? How much do we think self-publishing will grow this year? Uh, how much should we invest in subscription services uh, versus selling books one at a time? It's a sign that you are in uncharted territory if you suddenly find yourself asking questions in your business that you have never had to ask before. And this last five months has been almost all new questions. And most of them were questions that I never thought I would even ask, never mind have to answer. Questions like, what do we do if there are no new books released for a month or two months or three months? 
what happens if we can't manufacture any new devices this year? Is it better to give away 10 million books or sell 100,000 of them? Should we distribute a book about a cure for COVID-19 if we know the science is bad? What if people start to think that browsing in a bookstore is dangerous, that paper is dangerous? Will people want to read when it feels like the world is on fire? What if people have to make a choice between books and food? Needing answers to those questions meant that our business, our industry, was in a place that had never been before. And I think if all of the questions you use to answer you, you, know, you ask about your business change, uh, it means that you're in the middle of a disruption or in the middle of a crisis or both. Our industry has already been disrupted a few times. I don't think that anyone would argue that right now we are in the middle of a crisis. And a crisis is like a crucible. Uh, it tests things. It exposes both strengths and weaknesses. And that is certainly true of the COVID-19 pandemic. It, it isn't just a health crisis. Everything gets put into the fire and we get to find out how strong it is. Big things like healthcare systems, economies and governments, smaller things like individual businesses, relationships and families. And also hard to define conceptual things like the nature of work and civil society, responsibility and freedom. That same testing has been happening inside each industry, including our book industry. And while we are far from finished with this experience, we can at least look at what we've learned so far and imagine what it might mean for the years ahead. And so I'll take um, this next period of time in three parts. Uh, one is to talk about how we learned, what we learned about how Kobo has operated as a company during this time. And extrapolating from that, what that means in terms of how we will work going forward in what everyone now seems to call the new normal. The second is what this crisis has revealed about readers and their relationship to books. And then the third is what we've learned about the industry as a whole, where it was fragile, where it was resilient and how it has adapted. And I know that that structure is a little bit different than how it's set out in the outline, but everything will get covered there, I promise. So let's talk a little bit about Kobo. One of the, um, uh, we'll talk a bit about um, the, some of the aspects of the business and how we've been operating. And I'll set that up by listing all of the things that were looking very bad in February and March and the new questions that we had to ask, um, most of which were quite challenging. We had an early view to the impact of coronavirus because of our factories in China and Taiwan. Uh, for background, in the world of high-tech hardware, there are three high holidays, Black Friday in November, the week leading up to Christmas in December, and Chinese New Year in January. But Chinese New Year is doubly important. Uh, not only is it a very important time for shopping in China, but almost all the factories are closed for the week of Chinese New Year. So companies that rely on manufacturing throughout Asia have to keep New Year in their plans. For one week out of the year, the biggest manufacturing economy in the world mostly stops producing. And most businesses, including ours, try to hold on to as little inventory as possible. Generally, we manufacture when we need to. But because of New Year, we build up extra to make sure that we have inventory to spare while the people who assemble our devices are celebrating New Year in their hometowns with family. But this year was different because everybody who left those factories to go home and visit their families didn't come back. For the first time in living memory, the New Year holiday, the end of January, was extended by a week. 
for a lot of us, this was the first time that we heard the word coronavirus. Soon the quarantines would start. Wuhan would go into lockdown and the rest of the, the, the story we know. But for us, it meant that people who usually work in our factories were trapped inside quarantine zones at home. Uh, our Shanghai factory closed completely. Taiwan maybe had 50 percent of the staff that it usually did. Uh, and so both our factory operators and our teams all got our first taste of making business decisions during COVID-19, working with government shutdowns, uh, finding people who were um, uh, isolated within quarantines and needing to prioritize safety over everything else. And so that gave us our first new question. How long in the midst of all of this before we can make new e-readers again? We had two lucky breaks. One is that we had extra inventory to tide us over during New Year. The other is that if you are going to work anywhere during a pandemic outbreak, high-tech manufacturing and assembly isn't a bad place to do it. Everyone works in full gloves, masks, goggles, and clean suits in specially filtered rooms. So as soon as people could get home, they could go back to work. So by the end of February, we were back to about 50% capacity, even while the outbreak started to get more serious. It gave us an early look at the pandemic and started us thinking about what could happen if this left China and Taiwan and started to show up elsewhere. So in February, we announced that there would be a remote work rehearsal at Kobo. Sometime in March, we said we would pick a date, give people notice the night before and close the office for 24 hours. All work had to happen at home. And at the time, this seemed like a big deal, closing the office completely for one entire day. So we did that in the first week of March. And we did it while I was visiting our partners, Feltrinelli and Mondadori, in Milan. And two days after I left, Lombardy was in lockdown and Milan was closed. And a week after that, we closed our office for real and haven't opened it since. And at the same time, every single one of our retail partners closed their stores. We went from 10,000 retail locations selling Kobo devices to zero in about 14 days. So there were some new questions. What happens when we don't have an office anymore? If we've built our distribution strategy around bookseller partners, what happens if they all close? And what do all of those customers, those readers, do when all of those stores close? Of all of these, the least interesting question was the remote work question. Remote work hasn't been hard for us in terms of getting the work done. We've had remote employees since we started the company because we've historically tried to avoid creating new offices when we open new countries. So we have employees who've been working remote for five years or more who are leaders, managers, critical members of the team. We are also spread across offices in Toronto, Taipei, and Dublin and Darmstadt. So Remote collaboration is essential. And we have a Japanese parent company who has prioritized video conferences as necessary for good communication ever since we were acquired in 2012. So just about every team has members who are remote or in a different location. And we have systems and tools that we need to manage and communicate that well. We've now given all employees the option of continuing to work remotely until at least January 2021. If we can start to open up, we don't expect to be able to bring back more than 25% of our employees into the office at any one time um, until a vaccine is found. And some will probably stay remote permanently. And that's okay. Because we've confirmed some things that are going to be big parts of the new normal for us. It turns out that the home parts of working from home are much harder, harder than the work part. Childcare, roommates, bad connectivity, lack of home office space uh, are more challenging than getting the work done remotely. The most common reason that people have for wanting to come back to the office are difficult working conditions at home and having to juggle childcare, education, and work all at the same time. 
the joke that we've had is that people want the office to open so they can send their children there, not that they can go back themselves. It turns out it's never been about the office, that it's always been about the people. And that with the right tools and habits and rituals, culture can be built and maintained and strengthened without people being in one building. And the good news is that we know how to do the hardest part of this now. We know how to work remotely. We know how to work as a distributed team. So as different services unlock, as restrictions ease, it will keep getting a little bit easier. And even if there's a second wave, we know that we can keep the business running and running well. But we don't expect to open another office anytime soon or expand ones that we already have. Our headcount will get bigger, but it will almost certainly also get more spread out and it will not involve us renting more space. One of the great benefits of working in the book industry is that publishers and book retailers like to work and locate their offices in beautiful cities. Unfortunately, they are also expensive cities. And for junior employees, support staff, even mid-career employees, it has become increasingly difficult to live anywhere near the office in London or Paris, Milan, Toronto, or New York. And it's certainly much easier to reevaluate the importance of expensive real estate when it has been sitting empty for a few months while the business keeps running. For us, that isn't going to be a hard question. We love our offices, but we don't have our identity as a company tied up in them. The bigger and more difficult question for us um, was going back to those factories that we were running. What happens to our hardware business? Does it matter that factories are only producing half of the devices we need if all 10,000 stores we sell at are closed? The answer, basically, is yes, it does. Because our retailers pivoted hard to the promotion of ebooks and e-readers as their physical stores closed. And we were able to sell more e-readers with all 10,000 stores closed than we had forecasted to sell with all of them open. And this is a bit of a preview about what we learned uh, from customers, but it also speaks to the agility and speed with which some of our retailers, especially Fnac in France and Spain, Bull.com in Netherlands, Thalia in Germany, Montadori Trinelli in Italy, Indigo in Canada, Walmart in the U.S., and many others who decided to focus their promotional attention on e-readers and e-books in the midst of the pandemic. So our factories were able to get up to capacity by mid-March to keep up with demand. Many uh, bricks-and-mortar retailers who had made significant online investments over the years were rewarded for their efforts, not just with sales, but also with customers who continued to buy from them, even as their stores were closed, instead of going uh, to a large international competitor like Amazon. As a broader trend, I fully expect companies like ours to start diversifying their supply chains outside of China. What this crisis showed us from a supply chain perspective is that it isn't enough to have multiple vendors if they're in the same country. And it isn't just for those of us who make electronics. The same is true of any children's book publisher who does all of their color printing in China. A pandemic or political unrest, a trade dispute or embargo won't just close one factory. We now know it can close all of them. Apple's attempted to move some manufacturing to India with some challenges and also to Vietnam. My bet is that trend will continue. If our first set of crisis questions was about the business and could it continue to function, the second set of questions was definitely about the reader, about the customer. So while we've learned how to work remotely and while we've learned how to make our supply chain more resilient, we started to try and answer the question of how would the reader behave as soon as we saw Italy and then France and then so many other countries go into lockdown. And that question for us was, what happens when readers can't go to bookstores anymore? This was especially interesting to us because 
the ebook customers uh, that we have in Italy and France are terrific. They both purchase frequently and they tend to stay with us for a long time. But both Italy and France have been growing slowly and steadily when it comes to digital. Unlike the US or the UK or Canada that all sit between somewhere between 20 and 30% of digital adoption of trade books, Italy and France are barely 10%. Lots of reasons for it. Ebook prices are higher. Attachment to local bookstores is strong. But in our research, we also found another factor that both Italy and France had high percentages of customers that we call never evers. Never evers are philosophically opposed to ebooks. They're the ones who, if you ask them about ebooks, will talk for 10 minutes about how important the smell of books are. They will talk about their bookshelves, about the romance of physical bookstores. They love books, but will never, ever read an ebook. So the lockdown poses an interesting dilemma for the never, ever reader. Bookstores are closed. Libraries are closed. But they are also now mostly confined to their homes and often with a lot of free time available. Reading is the thing that they love to do the most. They might order physical books online for delivery, except for one of the truly unexpected surprises of the pandemic, the almost complete inability for e-commerce players like Amazon to deliver print books through March and April. Uh, this was the result of a combination of factors, mostly decisions to prioritize protective and medical supplies and groceries and other critical goods to lockdown customers, which was probably the right decision overall, but not happy news for publishers and certainly not for our never ever readers who now had to decide, would they stop reading or would they try digital? This also posed a dilemma for us. This is the perfect time for eBooks in lockdown. People are home, bookstores are closed, people have time, but it's during a pandemic. And the last thing we wanted was to start advertising or marketing. We would look callous and unfeeling and profiteering, like someone trying to sell life jackets as the ship is sinking. And no one is paying attention to ads right now anyway. So how do you get the word out about digital reading in the middle of a pandemic? The answer for us came first from the Italian Ministry for Technological Innovation and Digitization. When the first lockdowns happened around Milan, the ministry reached out to software vendors, cloud providers, streaming video services, and Montadori, who then reached out to us. And their ask was that they wanted to create a package of digital services and media to give to Italians who were finding themselves confined at home. You know, the government would pay some, the retailers would pay some, and together we would help soften the impact on people who suddenly found themselves unable to leave their homes. And so in less than 72 hours, we had the offer up and running. Mondadori put almost their entire catalog in, and we gave away tens of thousands of free books in the first week of the Italian lockdown with promotion coming from the Italian government. This became the first of our stay home and read campaigns. And we decided to replicate it in each country where a lockdown took place, creating a collection of free and deeply discounted titles, mostly provided by publishers, along with our own exclusive titles and free classics. And we did it in Canada, the US, the UK, Spain, Netherlands, Belgium, Mexico, France, Portugal, Brazil, Turkey, South Africa, Taiwan, and Japan. In 75 days, we gave away 15 million ebooks to people under lockdown. Which led us to our next question. As someone who is in the book selling business, instead of the giving books away business, does it actually help us to give books away? And this is one of the topics that people fight about at retailers, inside publishers, even within individual teams at Kobo. And the reason that they fight is that there is a solid argument to be made on both sides. One of the rules that, uh, one rule of ebooks is that many people who read free books don't read anything else. We call them freegans. And if you've heard me talk, you, you'll know I've talked about them before. Freegans 
like ebooks because they can get free ebooks and they don't want anything else. And they're pretty much impervious to any kind of campaign that attempts to persuade them to pay for anything. We have in our user base millions of freegans. And the extra challenge is that to Kobo, freegans aren't free. Because while they don't pay for books, they still have problems with apps, or they find bad formatting in their free ebook, or they have a challenge with their e-reader, so they still call our call center. They send email requesting support. They are like the dark matter of the digital customer base. And so the group within our company that are anti-free book people say, why would you want to do anything that makes more freegans? But... While it is a truth universally acknowledged that a freegan in possession of free books must be in want of more free books, to misquote Jane Austen, a freegan favorite, not everyone who downloads a free book becomes a freegan. Some people use free books to try out the ebook experience and then go on to pay for books they actually like. They become not a freegan, but a pagan. People on this side of the argument talk about free ebooks like training wheels, on ramps, helping someone get used to reading in digital without risk. So if the anti free group is right, then flooding the market with free books could create a lot of freegans and sales go down. If the pro free group is right, millions of free books should create some number of pagans along with the freegans and sales go up. As a bet, it feels risky. We could sell a smaller number of ebooks but get good customers, or give away a lot of ebooks and maybe lose money and get bad customers, or both. So, why did we give away 15 million ebooks? First, it seemed like the right thing to do. Millions of people at home needed something good to happen to them in the middle of a lot of fear and uncertainty. And the economic hardship coming from the pandemic is real. Secondly, we had to remind people that they could turn to books during the early days of the lockdown. Otherwise, it could be all Netflix and YouTube and making bread. So the first days of isolation, we wanted people to remember that they had ebooks to turn to. The third reason brings us back to the never evers. We had this unique moment to introduce digital reading to millions of people who had thought up until that week that they would never, ever read in digital. And now they had to decide whether to give it a try. Giving up your most firmly held beliefs, like the unassailable right to smell paper, is not easy, even in a time of pandemic. So we saw this as a unique opportunity to get as many people as possible to try ebooks who would never normally do so. So who was right, pro-free or anti-free? And what happened with the never-evers? Well, they were both right in a way. A lot of people who showed up just read free ebooks and so far haven't bought anything, at least so far. They may still be working through Alexandre Dumas and Dante and the first free book in an 18-book paranormal series. So that's one point for the anti-free group. But at the same time, our sales have skyrocketed. In every country we ran the Stay Home and Read campaign, revenue from ebooks is up anywhere from 35 to 130% versus the same time last year. And we've massively beat all of our projections for new paying customers. And what about the never evers? There are two data points that lead us to believe that our bet paid off. The first comes from looking at how this new group of free book readers is reading. One of the dirty little secrets of freegans is that they collect a lot of books, but usually don't finish them. Only 19% of freegans finish a book they download. To see if this latest crop of free readers was different, we sampled 50,000 customers who downloaded their first free ebooks in May. Roughly half, 47% of those, downloaded one book. The other half downloaded 5.4 books on average. And of that group of multiple downloaders, 74% of them have completed at least one of the books that they downloaded. So they love collecting books and they are completing them at four times the rate of a regular free reader. 
And the same goes for the new pagans who've we acquired. Even with all of the free books flying around, these new paying customers are buying and reading at the same frequency of some of our best customers who've been reading in digital for years. So this gave us the opportunity to introduce a few million new people to ebooks. Some of them really like it. And if they behave like our other digital customers, they'll keep buying print when stores open back up as well, but they'll buy differently. Personal fiction reading will be more likely to happen in digital while high value nonfiction cookbooks, illustrated books, children's books, books given as gifts continue to be bought in paper. Is that a good thing? I think so. And I'll talk more about that in a minute. But at a customer level, one thing we can be sure of is that consumers of media have just had their world turned upside down. The never ever reader who's now reading ebooks is also the person who never tried Netflix, but now has three streaming subscription services or the person who religiously went to the movie theater, but now has a giant TV at home or used to go to the public library, but now has an audiobook subscription. So for sure, we are going to see new consumption patterns emerge just because people have had the opportunity to try new things. As I wrap up, I'll talk a little bit about what these last few months have revealed to me about the industry as a whole. I think if you asked anyone in January whether the book industry was sufficiently diversified and resilient, most people would have been very confident. They may not have liked the balance, too much Amazon, not enough independence, too much digital or not enough, but the mix felt solid. If you asked anyone if there was a scenario where they would suddenly lose 80% of their revenue, you probably would have gotten a funny look rather than an answer. After all, we had diversity of types of retail, independence and chain booksellers and general retail and e-commerce. We had diversity of delivery options, online plus in-store plus digital, a diversity of formats, print and digital and audio, and a diversity of publishers and creators, everything from independent authors to multinational publishers. Even for Kobo, we felt like we had a fairly well-diversified set of paths to market. Multiple countries, in each country, often several retailers, thousands of retail locations, presence both in-store and online, traditional publishers, and self-publishing. And we had survived currency devaluations, retail bankruptcies, one attempted coup and an armed occupation, separatist riots, hurricanes and typhoons, all because we never had all of our eggs in one basket or our sales all with one country or partner. But for the industry as a whole, that diversity becomes much less helpful than we thought in the midst of a pandemic. All at once, we saw the shutdown of independence and chains and general retail. We saw online retail stop delivering physical books and print sales go effectively to zero. We watched publishers stop releasing new books. For this industry, these months in 2020 will be a dividing line in time. Before this time, it was inconceivable to have a part of your business plan as a publisher or a retailer that said, here is our plan in case it is completely impossible to sell physical books. From now on, it will be inconceivable not to have that plan. Publishers have in various ways favored print to preserve the retailers who rely on it and have been nervous about digital because the retail landscape for eBooks is less diverse. And those are fair concerns. But now we have new ones. Focusing on print retail for a publisher turns out to be a lot like ha our having two factories 90 minutes away from each other in Shanghai and Taipei. We now know there are some kinds of risks that can take them all down at once. We thought we were diversified, and now we know we're not. And to be clear, I don't suggest that just selling less print and more ebooks is the solution to this. The next crisis could be a cyber attack on a major e-commerce player or on intercontinental fiber links. With what we know now and with the questions that we have asked and answered, we get to choose where we want to create additional resilience in our industry, how we want to evolve, how to reinforce the parts of the business that were more fragile than we thought. We now see that a business built on one format, on one retailer, on one path to market can quickly become no business at all. With a lot of government support, and if we don't go back into lockdown again in the next six months, most of the companies in our industry will survive to see the new normal. Some will treat this as a once in a lifetime event 
and try to get back to the way things were as quickly as possible. But others will see this as an opportunity to make the industry both stronger and more flexible. My hope is that we become more intentional in our diversification, a greater balance between print, digital and audio, more companies selling them, and new business models with companies spread across more locations. I think it means more publishers thinking about selling directly and more retailers building up their own catalogs of exclusive titles. And it means customers more willing to read in whatever format happens to be convenient at the time, thinking more broadly about how their reading happens, focus less on, on the material and more on the essence and the story and the idea. Thank you. You've now listened to my questions and I'm happy to take yours. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Michael. It was wonderful. I would like to welcome back. I will ask uh, kindly uh, Rudiger Wiesenbach to open back uh, his microphone and uh, try to collaborate in the question time with, with me. Michael, thank you so much for that wonderful talk. And I always enjoy it when someone is not doing PowerPoint, but just giving us a story, a powerful story even more. Uh, the DNA of Kovo from the very beginning was always different from many others in the publishing industry. It was all about collaboration. You're working with retailers, with chains, with brick and mortar stores. So, uh, now you were called upon uh, by a ministry in Italy, you told us, and an Italian publisher giving you an idea for an international campaign. Uh, what's the role of that spirit of collaboration in that very moment in overcoming the hardships of a economic crisis uh, shifts in the use of behavior, etc. I, uh, I think there were a couple of, of things that became very important in our relationship with our retail partners as, as we went into the crisis. The, I think the most important was that we had built up a reserve of trust over the years that we had worked together. It would be so easy in in a situation like this to start to become concerned that uh, that they would be giving away too much by promoting digital or that they would be harming their business long term um, or that we might try to take advantage of this situation to their detriment if we hadn't spent years building up these strong collaborative relationships together. And so when that time came and we could get on the phone with them and say, I know you can't sell physical books right now. Let's do everything we can together to keep these customers reading. They know that we were coming from a place of um, of trying to work together to mutual benefit and uh, and we're able to respond very quickly as a result. So it was it was both a test to the strength of the relationships and uh, also of the teams being able to collaborate together well. Like I said, the, the campaign that we did in Italy from first phone call to being live was about 72 hours. And, um, and that only happens when you have people who are used to working together well. And then being able to walk that across uh, a lot of other territories with a lot of other retailers and each one in a different way. Italy was the one where government was most involved in uh, in France. The government wasn't involved at all, but it was a viral social media campaign that pushed millions of readers towards FNAC and uh, and Kobo as people were looking for books to read. Um, it uh, you know, so it manifested itself in different ways, different engagements with the publishers. Um, in Netherlands, for example, we didn't give any books away for free, but we sold them all for one cent, um, and, which may have something to do with the Dutch notion of what's important and free. Um, but uh, 
um, but also meant that we could give away a lot of children's books to uh, to parents who were at home with their kids. So just fascinating to see how different retailers were able to respond to this differently and that we could help them out. Okay, there, there, there is a, some there are some questions here. The first one would be uh, based on the studies and experiences you have carried out at Kobo. Do you think that uh, return to the physical experience around the book will be possible as long as there is no vaccine? I mean, pleasure visits to bookstores, activities like book clubs and so on. I um, this is something that I've been I've been talking to some of our retail CEOs a lot. Um, and it's going to be interesting to see how people choose to engage with physical space. You know, what we've already seen so far in the, the places where, uh, where retail has opened up is that store traffic is still very low. You know, people are not treating, uh, treating physical retail as a relaxing, enjoyable thing that they're doing right now. They're treated as they treat it as something that they have to do quickly and efficiently um, because they're still concerned about maintaining a level of social distance. And that's challenging, especially for the book industry, because so much of physical retail is built around this idea of browsing is built around the idea of going into this beautiful space, spending a relaxing and enjoyable time, looking at different books, picking them up, putting them down, reading a few pages. And so now we come out of this period of isolation where the idea of picking up something that somebody else has already touched feels risky for the first time. And so you know, we we see that manifesting even in um in retailers who've been open now for uh, for a number of weeks. Hopefully that will subside in time, but it's still definitely going to be a different retail experience than what we've had in the past. So I don't assume that as soon as stores open, we just snap back to what the way things were before. I think we're going to find that we're in this much more hybrid experience of some people wanting to be in stores because they want the comfort of that experience. Some people using stores effectively as quick access warehouses. Let me come in, find the thing that I need and get out. Um, some people who will take the digital habits that they've built while in isolation and then continue with those over time. Um, and we have to be able to adapt to that new circumstance. All right. Um, there is another one uh, on the same note, I would say, uh, because it's asking about the retail sector. Uh, if this is going to have a, a permanent impact, uh, and especially in the brick and mortar bookshops where Kobo is present. And I would like to, to, to hear from you and also from Rudiger, uh, this hybrid, uh, this hybrid, um, system that, uh, Michael was talking about. In, from your perspective, also, Rudiger. Please, Michael. Um, <clears throat> I do think that uh, retailers are now faced with this challenge of reimagining what space means and what a good experience in that space looks like. Um, you know, we're used to, and I'm you know, thinking especially about the stores that I love in you know, independent bookselling, which are small and intimate and densely packed with books and you know, kind of you know, narrow aisles and corridors. And you love this feeling of being surrounded by, um, by books and literature. Um, but that becomes a very different experience right now. So how as retailers do you start to adapt the space that you have um, to uh, to deal with the fact that people are just not going to feel as comfortable in retail environments as they have in the past um, and be able to create new experiences that match their expectations and manage their fears. And I think it can be done. I don't think that we're talking about people not wanting to go into a bookstore anymore, but it probably isn't going to look the same as it did in the past. Uh, Rudiger, you, you talk to everybody, so I imagine you have... You have different uh, perspectives on this too. Um, I'm, I'm very 
fascinated by suddenly everybody in the cultural field, I'm not just talking about books or reading, everyone, music clubs, uh, big theaters, small theaters, authors with their reading, are experimenting with streaming, broadcasting, doing something. There's one big shortcoming. You can hardly, even if you wish, you are hardly, uh, you, we don't have the tools to pay for that. So if I watch a theater performance uh, broadcast by the Berliner Ensemble in Berlin or uh, an author who is doing a reading from his home, I cannot pay for it. And so I guess on the one hand, we will see a lot of experimentation, many new ideas, and hopefully also, and here's the, the, the uh, value chain and, and, and um, uh, logistics part that you mentioned, Michael, uh, playing a very important role. How can we take advantage of the know-how that, for instance, people from the book business have to really engage and build and, and innovate the entire range of cultural activities. And here I see uh, lots of opportunities to create new spaces, both uh, physical spaces and virtual spaces. And I think okay. we'll probably see, um, we'll see influences from that come from other sectors into the book industry as well. The, um, and it's, it, it's interesting because the, I think the places that we've seen it first were in sectors where it really was evolve or die. So the um, one of the first places that we saw pay for performance streaming uh, was in sectors like uh, yoga studios and personal training. Um I, I happen to have a family member who who runs a yoga studio, and within five days of the lockdown, not only did they have pay per streaming um, yoga classes up and running, but they had bigger classes than they'd been able to have in their physical space. And at a time when everybody felt like they needed that experience because everybody was both trapped at home and stressed. Uh, so and it was because for them, it was literally do something or go broke. And so I don't think that in some of the um, some of the sectors like the book industry, we've quite won and in, run into that that crux point of. Either we figure out how to get people to pay for something or it has to stop entirely. Um, but we'll see tools and techniques from those other sectors start to bleed their way in. And it will probably mean a reimagining of some of kind of the, the rituals that we've generally rooted in physical space. You know, why should the author reading be confined to the 25 people who can make their way to, uh, you know, to a book retailer on a particular night. Why can't it be everyone who's interested in that author's, uh, that author's work all at the same time? Um, and why can't have that have some, uh, you know, a performance and a payment aspect to it at the same time? So uh, I think we start to see a lot more of that as, um, as people start to learn across industries. So this is very interesting for me indeed, because uh, when we created Readmaging back in 2005, we felt that we needed uh, in this publishing sector and the library sector also to uh, import uh, views and tools from other uh, sectors such as medicine, architecture, fashion, and so on. So this is linked to the next question. They are asking to you, Michael, uh, do you think that is now the time to innovate instead of preserve publishing system? I think we don't have a choice. Um, there, like I said, towards the end, I think there will be some people whose immediate impulse is to try to go back to the way things were. Um, and, and what that requires is a belief that something like this will not happen again in our lifetime. Uh, but I, you know, I personally don't believe that. I think we will, I think we will find ourselves in a situation like this again. And what I'm not confident of is that 
the governments who have invested a huge amount of money in preserving and supporting industries this time will necessarily be able to do it again the next time. So resilience, the ability to both diversify revenue streams, diversify uh, methods of distribution becomes incredibly important if we want to survive another one of these um, and are, want to do so with the assumption that we won't be able to rely on government support in order to uh, in order to get through it. So it's so it is innovation time. Um, and I think we will see that both in how books reach consumers um, as well as in some of the business models that support that. So I'm uh, I'm looking forward to it. We've certainly changed a lot of things over the course of the last uh, the last number of months and started plans for more uh, based on things that we've learned in the last 60 days. Okay, that's a new one. Were the company activities, not retail, you found impossible or really hard to replicate in a distant working? I, again, I think we were fortunate because we were already distributed enough that all of the teams more or less had figured out how to um, uh, how to work individually. The biggest thing that we can't do remotely is we can't manufacture things. Um, we need people in a factory to be able to build. Uh, and so some of the uh, some of those kinds of interactions we just can't do any other way, and those become the places that we feel we're most exposed in terms of the possibility of a second wave of a pandemic. So we have to watch that very closely. The other places that we've had to work hard to replicate are in places where we would try to get face-to-face -face either with our customers or, uh, or with our coworkers, uh, things like doing usability testing, inviting customers in and observing how they, you know, how they interact. We can, you know, we've started to do those things remotely, but it's just harder. Um, and then one of the things that we were worried about was, you know, were we, were we actually going to be able to preserve the culture of the company as we worked remotely? You know, even with people being distributed, we have a lot of things that happen in offices. Our offices are fun. They're open concept. You know, they're very collaborative. And, and for the most part, we've been fine. The, and what I'm, what I'm most happy about is that we've had now employees who we've brought on to into Kobo over the course of the last 90 days who have never been to the office, um, who, who barely know that an office is there, but still consider themselves to be well-integrated members of the company. Uh, they literally don't know any other Kobo aside from the all remote one, uh, and yet are still collaborating well and contributing well and are building relationships and friendships. So that part of it seems to be okay. Um, It's the places where we really do end up in physical goods that are most difficult, not just retail, but manufacturing, warehousing and delivery, where we have to put something physical in someone's hand. That's where all of the challenges are right now. Okay. Do you think that the main part of uh, publishers are for this kind of free access campaigns? Um, I was surprised by the flexibility that publishers came to us with. And to be clear, we didn't ask for free books from everybody. We said, here is the campaign that we're running. We want to try and put as many books in people's hands in the early days of lockdown as possible. What can you do with us? And so on a publisher by publisher basis, that sometimes meant deep discounts, or they would just focus on children's books, or they would do first books across series in genre fictions like science fiction and mystery and romance. Um, but I was surprised both by the number of publishers who responded and their willingness to think of this as a very particular moment in time um, that where Things like either discounts or free books uh, weren't just a commercial tactic, but were a way to help people. And 
that they view this as not just a commercial activity, but a part of their social mission of making sure that people had books available at a time that was very difficult for them. And so the, you know, the publishers that leaned in the strongest or that came to us directly were ones that were saying, you know, we want to help right now. And this is how we can help. You know, people are worried. They are at home. They are struggling. They're trying to find things to do for their children. Um, and you, Kobo, can act as a distribution vehicle to help us get these things to these people. And, uh, and that was both, uh, that was both heartening and, uh, and surprisingly generous on the part of many publishers. Um, not everyone did, and that's fine. Um, and, uh, but it's also been good to be able to go back to publishers and say, look, sales also went up a lot. So <laughs> nobody's, uh, you know, nobody's lost money along the way. Perfect. Uh, here's the, the last one. Availability of dedicated ink devices played a key role in onboarding new readers to ebooks, or is onboarding to ebooks possible with mobile phones or tablets? We did both. So we certainly brought millions of new customers on through both apps on smartphones and on tablets, and we sold um more e-readers than we had ever sold in a similar period of time um in the in the course of the last 90 days if we start to look at the data we see that still the majority of sustained reading is happening on e-readers um but somebody who has a smartphone in hand who has a tablet in hand is you know could be reading an e-book but tends to get pulled away by other things read for shorter periods of time, not read in a sustained a way or complete books as quickly or as often. So e-readers remain the place where people who are interested in doing long focused reading continue to do um, to do the majority of that. But it also showed smartphones and tablets as being this very easy way to introduce a lot of people to ebooks and e-reading all at once um, and had the advantage in some of our markets of being able to introduce them not just to ebooks but also to audiobooks at the same time so um, that that dual purpose device uh, was able to help us there too so it's um, it's been fascinating to watch but what was I think most interesting was seeing that those ratios of e-reading versus uh, e-readers versus smartphones and tablets didn't change that much over the course of the pandemic. You know, e-readers continued to have this very strong role as the place where most of the long form reading happened. Um, well, I would like to ask uh, Rudia to make the last remarks or exchange of ideas with you, Michael. And I, I, I thank you very much for these uh, insights and interesting, uh, inspirational ideas that you share with us. And, uh, well, we will hope that uh, we will have you in Madrid the next time, face-to-face -face in, in ReadMagging in, in our meeting. Thank you very much. Rudira, please. Thanks, Luis. I just have one takeaway that I want to <clears throat> emphasize strongly. If I understand you correctly, uh, Michael, but if you have to make a decision between putting your money into office real estate on the one hand or a yoga studio or a, book, a bookshop, you will definitely put your money into the bookshop and the yoga studio. Is this correct? <laughs> I, no, I would put my money in the people. I think what we found is that the value of people's productivity is in almost no way tied to their physical space for a lot of the professions that we normally associate with being in a physical space. And so finding people who are exceptional performers um, and investing in them, create wrapping the services and the supports around them to allow them to do their good work it turns out may not have as much to do with um, with signing a lease and uh, and building an expensive office around them as we thought. Invest in people. That's great. Thank you very much.
Thank you so much. And thank, thank you to you. both for the questions and for uh, the opportunity to speak to you all today. Thank you, Michael. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.